Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. We've been working our way through Mark, and one of the things that I really love about what we're doing, uh, love is probably the right word, maybe one of the things that I think is really healthy, maybe that's an even better word about what we're doing, is the fact that as you work your way through verse by verse a book, it, it doesn't allow you, as it's so easy to do as a speaker, to just talk about the topics you'd like to talk about and to talk about the topics that are easy to talk about. You just kind of have to deal with what comes, right? Today is one of those, we get to deal with one of those hard things. And it's not like we haven't talked about hard things that Jesus has said and, and things that we've seen done already, but today is one of those issues that not only in Jesus' day, but in our day today is a hot topic. It's an issue around which there are lots of opinions and arguments and dissensions, and it's an issue around which there is huge emotion. I want to invite you today as we uh, dive into this to um, allow yourself to see the goodness of God, which I'm going to try to illustrate in this process. Allow yourself to have a soft heart and if God speaks to you in a way that you feel like uh, you need repentance, that you would just do that with a confidence that God loves you and that's what he's inviting you to. And if God speaks to you with a way that removes guilt, then that's fantastic and that's what we hope happens for everyone because we serve a God who is very gracious. So let's dive into the text. Mark 10, 1 through 12. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. And again, crowds of people came to him. And as was his custom, he taught them. Now, some of the Pharisees, who had been traveling along with him the whole time, we've seen them throughout this time, and came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus' response was, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of, voice, uh, of divorce and send her away. And while I don't have time to go into this next verse statement, it's really a profound statement about who God is to us and his patience. It was because your hearts were hard, Jesus responded, that Moses wrote you this law. But at the beginning of creation, now quoting back to Genesis 2.24, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, and he answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery as well. Some pretty tough statements in there. But let's step away from that for a second. Let's picture this scene and let's, let's try to understand what's going on here. So Jesus and the disciples have left Galilee and crossed over into Judea. That's like leaving Ohio and crossing into Michigan. And everybody goes, boo, right? But the, the whole point of that is that there's actually, they're crossing into a territory where there is a new ruler of that, a governor of that area, and his name is King Herod. And we've seen Jesus all along traveling, and we've always seen the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and in most instances, and we could assume that that's probably true here as well, the Herodians, which are the ones who are for Herod and the ones who are the religious purists, and they are typically enemies, but we've already seen as we looked at Mark how those two people who are, no, those two groups who are normally enemies actually came together in their opposition of Jesus. 
And so when they cross this border, they ask this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And what they're actually doing is they're setting a twofold trap for Jesus in asking this question. Now, the first is, is a trap that's very similar today. If you bring up the topic of divorce, it's a, it's a topic around which there's a lot of dissension. And it's no different for Jesus because in Jesus' day, there were two primary ideas about divorce. Even in the Jewish literature, this is not just the Roman, this is the Jewish literature. And within the Jewish faith, there are two primary ideas. One was uh, kind of like our current day no-fault divorce. You could divorce your wife for essentially any reason. I mean, if she burned the meal and you didn't like it, if she just got bored and didn't like it, or whatever reason you wanted, you could write a certificate of divorce and and send her away. And that was one strong view, and there were a lot of proponents of that. In fact, if you really study this carefully, you actually see that view being represented to a certain extent among Jesus' disciples and their reaction. The second view was the view that divorce was only allowed in the case of the original word used in this text is pornea, which is the word from which we get pornography. Now, in that day, pornea was actually applied primarily as an understanding of adultery, not in the broader sense necessarily that we think of that word today. So when Jesus goes into the house and is in private with his disciples, not out in public, we see him answering and actually actually supporting this idea that adultery is a reason, possible reason for divorce. So if we look at this, and I'm not going to spend time with this, I'm just going to summarize it because I feel like without summarizing this, bringing this topic up, I'm going to have lots of questions. So let's just answer a few questions and then let's return to where I want to go with this. Jesus affirms the idea that adultery is something that is... Uh, allowing for divorce in a marriage without breaching your marriage covenant. And that's really where a lot of the theology around divorce comes. It comes down to, and this is my opinion, and it comes down to the issue of what constitutes a breach of this covenant that is so grievous that it gives you permission to break the covenant. And we see in Scripture, in, in my understanding of Scripture, and these are largely held, uh, points one and two are largely held across the board. Point three is, is not as widely held, but uh, adultery is one of them because of Jesus' statements here. In 1 Corinthians seven thirteen through 15, we see this interesting passage with Paul talking about uh, marriage of a, a believer and an unbeliever. And he discusses divorce in that context, saying if the unbelieving spouse is willing to live with the believing spouse, then you should stay married. But if they are unwilling to live with you and are going to leave or abandon you, then divorce is acceptable. And some people would say it's strict, that is strictly uh, in an unbelieving, believing setting, and others would expand that to abandonment in general so that abandonment becomes a breach of the covenant and allows for a biblical reason for divorce. The third one, is, which is not as widely held, is actually found in Malachi 2, 10 through 17. And if you understand the reason for Bible permitting divorce as the breach of covenant, this one becomes more much more clear because it's talking about the covenant in marriage and it, in that context it says that violence breaches that covenant. And so at least in my belief system, in my belief world, the Bible teaches that there are three basic reasons that allow for permission to divorce. Adultery, abandonment, and violence in the marriage. Now, you cannot look at these, and well, you can because there's lots of people who do. But I don't think it's reasonable to look at these as rules that you must do. 
If you have a spouse who commits adultery on you, it doesn't say that you have to divorce them. What these are is these are saying it is a permissible option that you are not breaching your vows and your covenant to make that decision, to do that. But we can easily look at the Bible and see books like Hosea where God commands somebody to remain faithful in a marriage to a prostitute who's committing adultery all the time. And we can see examples where God does that and that. But, but what happens a lot of times in churches, we see the example of Hosea and we start arguing that divorce is always bad and that you should always forgive and that forgiveness always means you should remove the consequences. And those simply are not statements that, that I don't think they hold water biblically. What Jesus is doing here, what the Bible is doing, is giving you permission, but it's not saying you should. And really, I think that's more in line with what we believe about relationship, not religion. It means that when you experience that kind of pain, you go to God and you ask Him for what He wants you to do. And you act, regardless of how confident you are in His answer, you act with a permissive and free conscience according to the biblical guidelines. And there shouldn't be pressure and guilt put on people in this arena. So let's move on from that and back to the trap that they're setting for Jesus. If Jesus answers this question publicly, what the religious leaders are trying to set him up for is to die. Because now he's inherited area. He's under Herod's rule. And if you remember earlier in the Bible, John the Baptist stood up and made a statement about divorce and remarriage because Herod had married his brother's wife who had divorced him to marry him. And John the Baptist made a statement that that was not biblical for marriage and Herod arrested him and eventually he was killed. And the Pharisees and the leaders of the law and the Herodians are trying to set up Jesus for the same thing. And Jesus' answer is this amazing answer that we'll get to in a minute. But as we look at our culture, we have so many changes, so many ideas about divorce and remarriage, don't we? In fact, if you look at our culture, in the last 50 years, the ideas around marriage and divorce have changed drastically. Just to give a couple examples, in 1960, for every 100 marriages that occurred in a year, there were 25 divorces that occurred. Today, for every 100 marriages that occur in a year, there are 50 divorces that occur. Now, one of the common mistakes that we make with that is people go around and say, that means 50% of everybody who ever gets married is going to get divorced. That's not actually what it's saying. Those statistics are not actually saying that because what, what, you're not, what you're not taking into account when the people mistakenly say that is the fact that there are many second, third, and fourth marriages and divorces going on in that given year. So it is far less of the number of percentage of people that actually experience divorce even though you have 100 marriages in a given time, you're going to have 50 divorces in that same given time. It's not 50% of the people will experience this in their lifetime. In 1960, the issue of cohabitation was negligible. And today, one half of all women, 25 to 40, will at one time cohabitate. It's a drastic change, isn't it? And regardless of what you think about all this, let's ask this question. What are the assumptions being made in our culture that has caused that drastic of a change? Tim Keller, in a book on marriage and in some of his lectures, uh, uh, proposes three major assumptions that our culture 
thinks about marriage. And the first one is that a vast, significant number of people think that most marriages are unhappy. And there's assumption made that most marriages will one day be unhappy and be long-enduring unhappy. The second assumption that a lot of people make is that living together before marriage is a great way to figure out if the person's right. Uh, if there's sexual and romantic chemistry, which actually could possibly be a fourth assumption, which is very strong. You live together, you find out if the sexual and romantic uh, uh, chemistry is good enough to make a lasting marriage. And if you do that long enough and you still have it four or five years from now, then maybe you should get married. And uh, then the third one is that the key to a happy marriage is finding the right, perfectly matched, perfectly compatible person. So you just take the eHarmony test and you're off to the races. And I'm not against eHarmony and those things. I know, I know a number, I have a number of friends who have gotten into great marriages and from those services. So that's not the point to diss that at all, right? However, think about it. Perfectly compatible. Is that even possible? I mean, it kind of discounts the gender differences, doesn't it? And how do you find perfectly compatible soulmate when you've got the selfishness of sin that we all struggle with. How does that work? It almost assumes that there's going to be a perfect person and that person is never going to change and I'm never going to change because if we change, we're not perfectly compatible. So it's like trying to find this moment of time in time of perfection for each other. There are three cultural assumptions. Most marriages are unhappy. Living together is a good path to marriage. And finding a perfectly compatible soulmate is the key. And yet, we can look at empirical study done Done, dozens of them done over the last 30 years that continue to say the same thing. Studies done by people on either side of the assumption fence coming up with the same things. And here are some incontrovertible empirical facts about marriage in American culture today. One is that those who live together before marriage are more likely to get divorced than those who do not. That's an incontrovertible fact done by studies. The second one is that the earlier sex is introduced into the marriage, the more likely the relationship is to break up. One of the, one of the other incontrovertible facts in all the studies is that two-thirds of marriages that say today that they are unhappy, if you pulse them again and they stay together for five years, five years from now they will say they are happy or very happy five years from now. The reality is, in all the studies, that most marriages in the U.S. say they are happy or very happy in their marriage. And you can even look beyond that. and You can, say, you can look at the lifelong issue. The lifelong marriage has been proven time and time again to result in better health for each person in the marriage, a greater accrual of wealth, and it's also proven that the kids from lifelong marriages have two times the likelihood of having positive outcomes in their life. There is so much evidence that says the assumptions of our culture are distorted, aren't even accurate. And yet our culture fears marriage, fears commitment, is waiting longer and longer all the time to get married because of a fear of that relationship. And yet the empirical data says marriage is really a great thing in the United States. 
Now, some say, and we, we kind of can assume this from what's already been said, some say that in marriage there's no advantage or, or marriage is limiting or, or, or maybe even irrelevant today, and that low view is so common. It's maybe something you, you hear it in college settings a lot, and I, I've talked to college professors who hear on a regular basis that's, that the, the, the view is that, well, marriage is maybe something you might do after five years of living together for really works and and that there's this other view out there that says, you know, because we live so much longer, that that means we change a lot more. And because we change a lot more, that means we become eventually incompatible. And so we should just expect divorce and expect multiple marriages in our lifetime because we're living longer. And those are just stats. Those are just... And sometimes we look at stats and we think they're cold and hard, but the reality is behind each one of those counting stats is a very personal story of someone who's had a great marriage or someone who's experienced great pain because of being in one of those circumstances. Now, our value where we live in northeastern Columbus, suburban northeastern Columbus, I think places a higher value on marriage and family than maybe what that norm is. But where I think the cloudiness comes in for us more maybe than those other views of marriage is, what's the purpose of marriage? We may have a high value on it, but what's the purpose? What's Jesus teaching us about marriage in this setting? Because he doesn't actually answer initially, and I think it's not just getting out of the trap of the, of the Pharisees. He's remaining true to himself. He doesn't really answer the divorce question publicly. What he does is he answers the marriage question. And that becomes the predominant issue of this. And in that, I think he's giving us this, this picture of marriage. But if you're here and you're not married, he's not just giving you a picture of marriage. He's giving you a picture of healthy, beautiful relationship as he wants it. So this is not just the talk about marriages. Now, Genesis 2.24 is what Jesus actually quotes in his answer, and it says this, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And what we see in this passage is, is this idea that, that marriage is not just a relationship, it's a covenant and we don't really understand that word covenant really well today. I mean, we have covenants and restrictions in a homeowner's association. That gives us a really sour look of what covenants are. If you've ever been on a homeowner's association board, that's just not a really happy thing, right? But covenant is this thing that, that marries this idea of vow. We all make vows. We're going to love you to death do us part, and we're going to love you in this such way. If you wrote your vows, they were probably amazingly flowery and... Long, like Manny wedding was really long because we wrote lots of stuff and did lots of stuff in it. We cruel, tortured people at our wedding. And you say all these things and you mean them and you want to do that, right? But a covenant is more than just a vow, but it's also more than just the cold contractual agreement. It's actually the marrying of those two things into one. And and the question then becomes, why is it important? And oftentimes in our culture, the question is, I don't need a piece of paper. Why is that important? If we don't need a piece of paper, 
and we don't need the legal side of it, then if that's true, then why do the studies consistently show that when couples cohabitate, things change after marriage? If that's true that we don't need the piece of paper, why is it the divorce happens at a greater rate among couples who cohabitate and then married, married, get married than those who don't cohabitate, don't have premarital sex, and then get married? Why is that true? I think it's this. As long as you're cohabitating, as long as you're just having premarital sex and getting together, you're still in marketing mode. You're still trying to sell yourself because you know the commitment isn't there. And love doesn't fully come out in that environment because love only comes out when there is this extra sense of commitment. And, you know, paper doesn't just do this, but a paper speaks a long ways towards doing this. It speaks a long ways towards saying, I'm with you regardless. And it's only when we have that that we start to become free as people to be ourselves. When we cohabitate, we're just marketing. When we get married, all of a sudden we say, I can relax a little bit. And we start becoming ourselves. And it's only when we start becoming ourselves that love really starts to go deep and take birth in our lives. Think about it this way, too. I mean, uh, if you think about why, why there's less divorce among people who don't have premarital sex, among people who don't cohabitate. Think of it this way. It's, it, the reason is simply this. Faithfulness is the currency of great marriage. Faithfulness is the currency of love. And if a person isn't willing to respect a person while they're dating and not engage in sex before marriage, then why should you trust that person to be faithful after marriage? If we haven't learned to set boundaries before, why would you expect us to set boundaries afterwards in marriage? Faithfulness is the currency of marriage. And God created us for an intimacy and a beauty in marriage. And even outside of that, an intimacy and a beauty in deep friendships that can be a lifetime, that can be amazing. Now, maybe think of it this way. If you've been married or you've dated seriously, think back to the first few weeks of that relationship or the first few months of that relationship. What did it feel like? I remember courting Wendy, and I remember the first time holding her hand, the first time kissing her, getting this great big euphoric tingly feeling all over, right? Have you ever, you, come on, you've all experienced that, right? It's just been that amazing feeling, and I, and it, and it just drove you to do things you wouldn't normally do, right? So in the first few weeks and first few months of our, of our, of our courting, I, I go get my roommate's guitar. I didn't really play guitar much, but I taught myself to butcher the chords to this wonderful song that I think, I think this song should be like the top five best wedding songs of all history. And yet I looked on the internet yesterday and it doesn't even make the top 100 on anybody's list. So I don't know what that tells you about me. But it was a song by Dan Fogelberg. Anybody even remember that name? Yeah? And it's a song called Longer. And it goes like this. Forgive me, I haven't sung much for 30 years. So, longer than there have been fishes in the ocean, 
higher than every, any bird ever flew, right? So love makes you lose your fear of heights because you go higher than any bird ever flew, right? Longer than there have been stars up in the heavens. I've been in love with you. And the second verse really gets the testosterone flowing. It goes, stronger than any mountain cathedral, truer than any tree ever grew, deeper than any forest primeval, kind of hearkening back to Robin Hood and Maid Marian theme, so that's, you know, good testosterone. I am in love with you. And then it gets really sappy, and it's just amazingly wonderful. It says, I'll bring fire in the winters, and you'll send showers in the springs. We'll fly through the falls and summers with love on our wings. It just sounds so easy, doesn't it? It just sounds like you should float through life. And you have to ask yourself, yeah, thank you. (laughs) You have to ask yourself, what did I sign up for in marriage? And whatever it was, it sure made me feel good, didn't it? When you signed up for marriage, it sure made you... But is that really love? Is that really what beautiful marriage is all about? You know, the reality, I think if we really honestly look at it, young love is still really pretty much me-centered. I feel really good because this person affirms me and this touch makes me feel good and it's really, so much of it is still about me. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters uh, talks about love this way. He says, "Love love is really hunger. It's an Ego emptiness that needs to be filled. And when you, as a person, are in love, it makes you feel better about yourself. Your ego feels filled. Your ego feels fed. And yet that kind of love is this temporary, shallow veneer of what love really is. Lewis Smedes, who's uh, most famous for his excellent book on forgiveness, Uh, wrote about he and his wife's marriage, and he said this. He said, when I married my wife, I had hardly a smidge... Isn't that a great word? Is he like an English person? I can't remember. Just a smidge. Anyway, when I married my wife, I had a, a smidge of a sense of what I was getting into with her. How could I know how much she would change over 25 years? And how could I know how much I would change? My wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed. And each of the five has been me. You know, when I think about after 26 years of my love for Wendy, sorry, I'm probably talking too much about that today, but it's just easy to illustrate, okay? When I talk about my love for Wendy now, or when I think about my love for Wendy, it's, it's not primarily the things that make me tingle, although I did tell you a couple weeks ago I love kissing her and all the other things that go along with that. But what really it makes me love her, sorry. <laughs> Is that TMI? Sorry. <laughs> what really makes me love her? What really makes me love her? Is that she knows the real me, and I know the real her, and she's invested to bring the best of me out like crazy. And I've invested like crazy to bring the best of her out. And even though there have been so many times when I've been a jerk, which I know you can think is really believable, and there have been times when she's been a jerk, and that's hard to fathom, right? Because she's so sweet and nice. And even though there have been times when life has been a jerk all around, we've made it through together. 
And it's those things that bring out the depth of love, isn't it? I mean, think about children. Children don't give anything back to you for a long time. Children just take and take and take. And yet the more you invest in your child, the deeper your love and your commitment goes to them. The kind of love we're all looking for is a love that comes out of a depth of service, a depth of investing, a depth of faithfulness and commitment, a depth of having been through wars with each other and with others, and you're still together, and you still admire one another, and you feel loved by the person who admires you. It's so much more sexy than anything we can ever think of to be that. And this is where Fogelberg's song really hits the mark. Tom, if you want to... Thanks. This is where Fogelberg's song really hits the mark. His last verse goes like this. Through the years, as the fire starts to mellow, burning lines in the book of our lives, and I'm sure those lines are in our faces, And yes, those lines are our smile wrinkles, but you know what? Some of the most beautiful lines are those angry eye lines that we've seen. And we're still together. Though the binding cracks and the pages start to yellow, isn't there something about well-worn things that is just this ultimate in love? I'll be in love with you. You see, Jesus calls us to look beyond divorce. He calls us to look beyond the hardness, the hopelessness, the disillusionment, the the dismal expectations that we have because of the pain we've experienced or the things we've seen that we so easily fall prey to. And instead, He's inviting us in His answer to look at the dream, at the original intention of creation. Instead of keeping our options open, instead of uh, being fearful of commitment, instead of viewing life through the lens of brokenness, He flips it on its head and says, I want you to view life through the lens of my eyes, your Creator, the Creator of your spouse, the Creator of your friend, the Creator of your family member you can't get along with, the Creator of the work colleague that just annoys the heck out of you. And I want you to look at them as I look at them. At the very beginning of creation, not through the lens of brokenness. And yet, brokenness affects us so much, doesn't it? It affects us even, I think, in our jokes that we tell about marriage. And so I'm not very good at telling jokes, so I've got a little help up there. Here's some of the jokes I saw on the Internet that when I ter- looked up best, best uh, most well-known jokes about marriage. The first one, marriage is not a word. It's a sentence. A life sentence. Hey, if I can't tell a joke, I've got to get help. You know? <laughs> marriage is love. Another one goes, love is blind. Therefore, marriage is an institution for the blind. Here's a good one. Marriage is an institution in which a man loses his bachelor's degree and the woman gets her master's. Another one. It's true that all men are born free and equal, but some of them get married. Okay, ladies, here's one for you. A husband is living proof that a wife can take a joke. Here's one. 
A husband is what's left of a lover after the nerve has been extracted. Thank you. And then there are the quips that we so often use, right? When we're in conversation about marriage, we hear the, we hear the quip, if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy, right? Or a wife saying on the birth of their first child, now I have two kids to take care of, right? Now, I, I seriously don't mean to be a killjoy. I, I, we can have fun, but think about jokes. Aren't most jokes funny? Because they take a point of tension or they take a point of pain or disillusionment and they make it feel light. Even in the way we think about and tell jokes and we quip about our marriages reveals that all of us struggle with a hardness of heart. All of us struggle by falling prey to seeing our relationships through the lens of brokenness. And I think what Jesus is asking us today is where are our hearts hard because we're concentrating on that brokenness in our spouse, in our parents, in our family, in our friendships, in our work colleagues, and we're looking through that lens of brokenness and hardness rather than seeing the creation that Jesus intends to free. How do our jokes and our quips and our things that we just throw across flippantly reveal that we're looking at life that way? Think about it for a moment. Think about an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all-wise God standing there about to create earth. Do you think it would be reasonable that he would create images and metaphors and things and relationships that would point to who he is and the beauty of who he is? Mirrors that we could look at. I think marriage is the most supreme example. And that's the reason it's not just a message today for marriage alone. I think it's the most supreme example that we can look at to see the love of God for us, to learn to experience the love of God for us, and to learn what healthy relationships are like. I want to go go a step further with me for a second. Uh, Michelangelo, the great sculptor, was asked many questions about his sculptures and how he arrived at them. And I've got three quotes from him about different answers at different times. And one of them, about his general approach to sculpting, he says, In every block of marble, I see a statue as plain as though it stood before me, shaped and perfect in attitude and action. Another time, forgive me, I I didn't pass this part of my humanities course, so I can't remember exactly what sculptor, what sculpture this was, but he's talking about an angel that he had sculpted, and it's probably really famous, and I should know. But he says, I saw an angel on the block of marble, and I chiseled till I set it free. Wouldn't that be a beautiful way to look at the relationships in our life, at our marriage? When they asked Michelangelo how he made his statue of David, he is reported to have said, it's easy. You just chip away the stone that doesn't look like David. Change is hard, isn't it, in marriage? 
Sometimes when we look at each other, when we view our, we view our marriage, all we can see is, is a hunk of rock that's hurting us right now, and we don't see the good in it. We see the brokenness in it. And yet, God's inviting us to see the beauty. And God's inviting us to allow our spouses and the relationships and the bosses that annoy us to chip away at those things that aren't you. To unlock the beauty. The Apostle Paul takes it further in referring even to this, uh, even to this specific quote that Jesus uses. And it's kind of a long text, but just go through it with me. Ephesians 5 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church's body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church. Sometimes wonder if that's where Michelangelo got some of those quotes without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one who ever, ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father, and quoting back to the same verse Jesus did, and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then Paul says this interesting statement. He says, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Isn't it interesting? This is one of the greatest love passages of the Bible, and love is barely even mentioned. It's talked about at the front that this is how we learn to submit to one another. This is not wives submitting to husbands. This is set up in the context of how in a marriage, how in life, we submit to one another. And Jesus is telling us that all about how to love. He's telling us what we talked about earlier. It's all about submitting our desires, our selfish-centered things to saying, I am going to serve the, His redemption of the beauty that he created my spouse to be. That I'm going to submit my life to serve that end. It's the way to demonstrate love. I think marriages, as Christ intended them to be, are the most powerful evangelistic tool on the face of the planet. They are the most beautiful picture of what all of our relationships should be about in terms of the quality and care for one another. And while our focus today has been on marriage, hear me clearly, and I've said it before, this is a metaphor to teach all of us how to relate to one another. You see, the world in the Bible begins with a wedding. And if we read the Bible, the Bible ends with a wedding. And in between, we see the pivot point of all history being this thing that takes us beyond just good ideas of what uh, a more traditional view of marriage would be to something that is empowered and so beautiful when we look at Christ on the cross. Because Jesus goes to the cross submitting Himself not to us, but to the Father, to God, so that He can have the power to submit himself to the journey to offer the greatest example of love 
to us that we've ever seen, that we can ever imagine. He didn't love us because we're lovely. He loves us to make us lovely. And that's his call for us in marriages today. And that just goes to show even more clearly how relationships are the mission if we follow Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this reminder. Lord, we all need it. It's so easy to fall prey to viewing life through brokenness. And Lord, for those here who may have um, experienced the ultimate brokenness of marriage and divorce, Lord, I pray that you'd come to them right now and that any repentance needs to be done would be done and your grace and forgiveness would flow freely. And any freedom from guilt that they may have carried that they shouldn't be carrying would be washed away by your Spirit as well. And that, Lord, for all of our relationships, whether it's in marriage or whether it's with people we work with or family members, Lord, would you teach us to be masters like Michelangelo and unlock your beauty in one another. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's how we can close. We're going to dismiss now, but here's how we can close. If you feel like God's spoken to you about an area where you you are view, viewing your marriage or a friendship or relationship through brokenness, then uh, I'd like you to today, now, or within the next couple hours, talk about it, pray about it, and ask God to help you view it differently. God bless. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.